All right, let's go ahead. Hey there, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Kyle Rizdahl. Thanks for being here on a Tuesday when we do a single topic, the topic du jour, du semaine, I think, the week, maybe the month, and maybe the year. I don't know. Mm. Banking regulation in the United States of America. I know it sounds exciting, but it's super, super <laughs> important. Trust us. I know. And here we thought we were going to be, like, worried about the election all this year. Mm. Anyway... But instead, we are so focused on banking and banking regulations and banking crises and banking failures and all of the little words you want to attach to banking at the moment. Um, but one of the things we've been trying to figure out is the role that regulation played in the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and what the rules that we have now and the rules we might have in the future might mean for the future of banking moving forward. So here to make us smart about this is Marissa Baradaran. She's a banking law professor at the University of California, Irvine, and author of the books The Color of Money and How the Other Half Banks. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So I guess the obvious question, was the collapse of SVB a regulatory failure? What happened? <laughs> I mean, that's a complicated question with a complicated answer, but yes and yes. Uh, and also that, you know, banks are, as you said, you, you don't want to think about banks because you want them to work. And when we are thinking about banks, something bad is happening, right? People are running mm -hmm. or, you know, there's some sort of failure. And um, you know, it's not like other industries where, you know, you're talking about how much regulation, you know, too much or too little or the right kind or not. Banks are essentially, they they are tied in with a lot, a whole massive government infrastructure without which they couldn't do what they do. Uh, so, you know, going even back to deposit insurance or, or to money itself, you know, banks are the transmitters of the money that is produced by um, us, by the federal government. And so, yes, it is a regulatory failure, um, the banking crisis. But, you know, then the question is like, when did that failure begin? Uh, how far back do we want to go? I think with um, Silicon Valley Bank, it's very clear that there were risks um, in this bank that they were engaging in, that uh, regulators had the authority to um, uh, sort of check and, and uh, you know, either increase capital or uh, otherwise uh, limit their risks. Um, and there's some things that maybe they had sort of legal loopholes for. So there's both, you know, there's some risks that, that just were missed uh, due, due to, due to regu uh, regulatory sort of, you know, they just did, didn't pick it up and, and they should have. And some where they lobbied or got uh, loopholes from laws uh, meant to protect other banks and, and were doing things different than uh, other banks uh, were doing. How far back do we want to go? Do we want to go to 2008, 2009? Do we want to go back before yeah. that? What's yeah. the what's the, you know, time scale here? Yeah, you know, I would go back before that. I would go you know, big picture, I would go back to around the 80s where you had that deregulatory merger wave. Um, uh, you know, you can go back to 2008, 2009 to the Dodd-Frank Act and say, look, even that was, uh, it wasn't sufficient, but even even with the Dodd-Frank Act in place, none of this would have happened. You know, you had to have an exception to the Dodd-Frank Act in the 2018 Crapo Bill to get the, the SVB Bank, you know, to, to exempt them from the stress testing and, and, and those regimes. So, you know, the, technically, yes, Dodd-Frank would have prevented this. Um, but going back further, you know, you you started in the 1980s, this merger wave that, you know, the, the, the CEO of Bank of America famously said, you know, you're either growing or you're dying. And, you know, you have mm -hmm. these massive firms get conglomerated, and then you have these tiny, small 
community banks that have been decimated for the past, you know, 30, 40 years. And this only intensifies that. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the effect of that is that you have these uh, companies, these startups that need this financing, they need this capital, and there aren't that size level banks, or there won't be uh, too many anymore. That point you just made, I think, is really important, is that when you have a startup, and I know we're thinking in this context like tech startups, but also if you have a small business, traditionally, mm -hmm. you might have gone to a small bank in your own community that knew mm -hmm. your community, or in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, knew your industry very mm -hmm. well to get financing. How is that dynamic changing? And I'm, and I'm wondering how what's happening with Silicon Valley Bank puts that kind of model of banking specialization at risk. Yeah. So this is, I mean, this, my first book is dedicated to this, How the Other Half Banks. And, and several of my articles also talk about this. Look, that was not, I mean, there wasn't some, like, the, the, the reason we had community banks is because the law made it so. The law made it such that you could only have one bank branch. You couldn't branch even within a state. You couldn't have, you know, one branch here and one branch there. There's very, very strict laws when the FDIC was passed in the 1930s. And even before that, states had very, very strict banking regulations because it's a, it's a subsidized, it's a charter that, that, uh, gives many privileges to banks, right? You can print money, basically, uh, the, the, with the government. You can make loans out of nothing. You can create, you know, uh, if as insofar as you're doing it right, the, according to what the uh, what the you know the government programs are, you can really you know uh, have this you know charter to to do a lot of um, things. And so that system broke down uh, about in in the 1980s, but. When it existed, it existed because of, you know, legislative and regulatory mandate. And, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't everyone, right? You couldn't, you weren't having banks in black communities, right? There were no banks in mm -hmm. communities that were outside of this structure. But insofar as it worked, it worked very well. So this is the George Bailey, you know, the, the golden era of banking between 1930 and, you know, 1970 or so, where you've got, you're kind of pumping out mortgages and GI bills and, and, um, uh, corporate loans and business loans, and you have small business and medium business and big business and all site all sorts of different banks. And you know that that market uh, changed as the banks changed, and they're very much related. The types of banks that we have also determine the types of businesses that get funding. So that's that's also important to note. It's not banks don't just show up. We have the banks that we create through the laws that we make. Let me run an old trope by you and see what you say. Banking ought to be boring again. Yes. Well, <laughs> it, but boring, you know, yes, right. Boring as in um, you sh there, it is not the place where you want to be doing gambling. It's not the place where you want to be making bets. There are types of banks, you know, you, we saw this before 2008. Those investment banks weren't bank banks. They were investment banks right. and they were right. for gambling. And I think the part, part of the problem is you end up creating these shadow banks. You, you end up giving these exemptions to certain types of, you know, borrow short, lend long. That's kind of banking. And if it looks like a bank and it walks like a bank, then it's a bank and we call it a bank. And then hmm. now that means we have to put the, FDIC insurance and all of that. And that's what you saw with Silicon Valley Bank. They were doing deposit taking and they were doing lending. They were, they, they made mistakes, sure, but this was a bank and a lot of their banking activities, a lot of their deposits were not covered by FDIC insurance. That's a problem. The, the whole point of FDIC insurance, it's not about the insurance. It's about like the panic, right? It's about the run. Mm -hmm. It's all psychological with, with, when it comes to runs, you can run out of capital 
it within a, you know, overnight. We saw it with Lehman, Bear Stearns, mm-hmm. and now with uh, Silicon Valley Bank, capital runs out real quick when people are running to the bank. But I mean, this is something we've been talking about pretty much for the last week or so. How realistic is it to have FDIC insurance for the entirety of a business's payroll? You know, like the payroll for your average yeah. business can be easily millions of dollars, and that's definitely going to yeah. exceed the insurance. So what are businesses supposed to do? Like we, divvy up their money, 250 grand at a time into 60, 70 different banks? <laughs> yes, in fact, they do. I mean, we do. We we have business. So first of all, payroll shouldn't have been on uh, as a deposit like that. They should, we should have had, uh, there tons of banks do this for tons of businesses. So GE, GM, everyone banks. And all of those deposits go into different accounts and they can, they're all insured. Every single deposit in the country, it should be insured. That's, that's the rule of deposit insurance because if some aren't, so imagine, you know, they say, okay, you have 250,000. That was the cap. We increased it during the financial crisis. I don't know if you remember, but in, uh, mm-hmm. before 2008, it was a hundred thousand. And so during mm-hmm. that run, immediately the treasury came out and said, no, it's 250 to stop the run. That's the point. And so when you have, if you have 200, let's say you have, a, you know, $280,000 in the bank and it's 250, are you going to be like, oh, 30,000, no big deal. You're still going to go get your money out and you're going to get all of it out. And then you have a run. Mm. So, so this is, and this is what's happening with the small banks in the country now is n- not necessarily like it hasn't happened, but it, uh, because they had to kind of other banks had to coordinate to put money into them. But some of the community banks, those funds were being drained out to the large banks because that's where safety is. And that's just a perpetual problem with bank runs. Bank runs are systemic. They don't stop at one bank. They ripple outwards. And that's the real danger. It's not just because it's not like a stock, right? I think there was some mistaking uh, equity here with deposits. Banking is very mm-hmm. hard to understand in, in that way. And sometimes you hear people like, oh, well, they were insolvent. Their shares were down. Shares are a whole different thing. You can be, you know, your shares could be in the toilet. But those deposits, that's customer money. So those have all got to be insured because that's not, that's like, you know, as Brandeis would have said, that's other people's money. Your shares are your equity money. That's your capital money. That's your shareholder money. Who cares, right? They, those can get wiped out. You screwed up. You should. But deposit money, that's my money. That's, you know, some other, you know, uh, startups money. Uh, and those, we just put our money in a bank. We trust it, right? You and I don't know, you know, don't know what kind of thing our bank does, but we know that our, the FDIC has us covered, or we should know because it's true. Now, if that knowledge leaves, then you have a system-wide panic. That's the Great Depression. That's the 1907 panic. That's every, yeah, it's 2008, right? You, you have this migration of banking into other realms that aren't FDIC insured, and then you get the inevitable run. And this is what banking regulators need to be aware of and have not been. They've, they've been a little bit lackadaisical. So what kinds of regulation do you think, given the current state of Congress, right, where people, leaders, mm-hmm. in, in specifically in the Republican Party, have already said, no, I don't think we need more regulation. What mm-hmm. what fixes do you see? What remedies do you see coming out of SVB and this entire episode, yeah. which, granted, we're not through it yet? Well, listen, I mean, I'm going to speak personally here. Uh, I was, yeah. uh, you know, for a time, the nominee for the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, you yeah. know, for the Biden administration. And uh, we had, I was on the transition team for the both, you know, the Treasury teams and the Fed and mm-hmm. all the banking teams. And so we had a lot of regulations in place. So this is, the regulators have the authority. You do not need Congress for this, right? So we do not have an OCC appointed uh, comptroller fr- from the Biden administration. There's an acting 
uh, administrator uh, who doesn't have as much power as, as someone who w- would be appointed does. And at FTIC also, we um, had the Trump appointee who left and now they had to kind of move move people around, but we did not get a presidentially appointed. We, you know, we have someone there. The the, the agencies are great. The, the examiners, they're all doing their jobs, but we haven't had a forward-looking regulatory mm. agenda. Same with, um, you know, in, in, within Treasury. It, they're, the banking regulators um, haven't really, we haven't really been like forward-moving. And mm. SVB, a lot of the other uh, exemptions, the loopholes, I would say, <laughs> that came during the Trump administration and, uh, and uh, you know, d- didn't get handled could be dealt with um, through regulatory uh, you know, authority and the regulator regulators have lots of authority to deal with this. And I think a lot of this actually didn't even need new rules. It just needed the rules that we had to be enforced. The examiners are supposed to go in there and see the risks that they have. That's their job. And, and they did, they are doing their job, but, the, but again, some of this could have been picked up by examiners. And, and I don't think it's any one regulator's Fault, but it is a mood that has been sort of this, and and you see it, you see it cyclically, you know, where we're like, we get, we get, you know, it's fine, let the market do its thing, and then we get these loopholes, and then people forget that banks aren't like the market; they're not the market, right? Uh, if a company fails, fine, let them fail. If a bank fails, it, we can't let them fail, and and you're seeing it now. We have to do the bailouts because it's other people's money, because the run is a psychological event, because the panic spreads and takes down everything. All of those things are always true, and we forget that they're true. Do you think we're through this whole episode? By the way, um, you know, like on Saturday, Sunday, I would have said, I don't know, <laughs> there's probably going to be like a run on the banks on yeah, you know this yeah. week. You know, and you're you're seeing you're. You're seeing some little dips. I, I look. If I were to say, you know, uh, advice to people, just keep your money, calm down. It's it's going to be fine. But calm is the thing we need. But to get calm, we need trust. And I think a lot of people mm. don't trust, and that's really, really important and should not be underestimated. Because now we're talking about: Do we trust the federal government? Do we trust regulators? Do we trust that uh, the examiners are doing their job? That the banks are following the rules? And that. You know, it's a very intangible thing, but it's the thing that banks need to survive. It's a thing that our entire economy needs because mm-hmm. banks are the engines at the center of it. And I think we we are at a <clears throat> critical place in terms of trust. I mean, look at how that mask thing went out, right? Um, with, mm-hmm. You know, masking. It's the same thing with runs. If yeah. we say everyone just calm down, they have to trust you. And if they don't, then, uh, you know, you have panic. Well, that's a note to end on. Uh, Marissa Baranarhan is a professor of banking law at the University of California, Irvine, just down the road uh, from us here in Los Angeles. Professor, thanks for your time. We, we appreciate Thank it. You. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's tough. It's tough, right? You got to trust, but all the signs are like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, don't panic. Trust us. Really. Right. It's fine. <laughs> that's right. Nothing is here. Move along. <laughs> oh, my Lord. So, look, first of all, we have to say this, you know, for 99.999% of the population in this country, your deposits are safe, right? It just, yeah. your, your money is safe. The the feds are there. The treasury's there. They have said they're going to do it. In fact, Janet Yellen today said, mm-hmm. we're going to make some moves to guarantee deposits across the board. So, well, and especially safe. the smaller so, banks, if uh, right. we're to believe some of the early drafts right. of the speech that I think right. she's going to be giving. Right. Uh, 
Which is going to What, be though, do you think about the meltdown in SVB of Signature? Talk about Credit Suisse if you want to, too, although it's kind of a different thing. Um, do we need regulations? The professor said no. Some people say yes. We'll see. Let us know. Our number is 508-827-6278. 508-UB-SMART. You can email us if you like. Make me smart at marketplace.org. We're coming right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. All right, news, Kimberly Adams. First, I want to start with a story in the Washington Post because I was feeling a little grim yesterday after the IPCC report and the Mm -hmm. dire state of our planet. Mm -hmm. But uh, the Washington Post has a regular column. uh, It's a climate advice column. And the goal is to be kind of a not so doom and gloom. It's got kind of the same vibe as our How We Survive podcast, which is, yes, it's a bad situation, but what can we do, right? What can we do differently to potentially mitigate uh, some of the things contributing to climate change or at least adapt to what's coming? And so there's a story in the Washington Post saying, you know, we should eat lentils every day. Now, granted, some people have dietary restrictions for a variety of reasons. I know it sounds trite, but... Small changes in everyone's habits make some difference. Of course, for meaningful difference that's actually going to help us meet our climate climate change goals, governments have to be involved. It has to be coordinated worldwide. And, you know, that's the only thing that's really going to get us there. It's not the responsibility of an individual person to fix the warming planet. However, that doesn't... um, (laughs) I'm trying to remember how he put it, and I'm, I doubt this was his original phrasing, but my dad used to tell me, just because you can't be the solution doesn't mean you have to be a part of the problem. And so hmm. in that light, if we change some of our eating habits, especially eating things that you know are easier on the planet to grow, that don't have as many emissions associated with it, eating more things like lentils instead of meat all the time, you know, it can help. It can help. And mm-hmm. just it's easy to just be and stay pessimistic about the climate, but 
In the meantime, while we, you know, fingers crossed, get our leaders to do something, well, not just fingers crossed, but people can take action to encourage their leaders to do something about it, we can also do things in our own home, which I think is worth keeping in mind. Okay. The other thing, I thought this was a very interesting article in Bloomberg. Uh, called what is a what's a Minsky moment and why the worries about one. I am not an economist. I didn't get a degree in economics. I took a couple of economics classes in college, but I never try to pretend that I'm an economist. So sometimes when we're reporting and we come across these sort of economic concepts, you know, I have to kind of go back to school myself to learn about them. And there's, you know, bubbling conversation about, you know, whether or not we are headed into a Minsky moment. And this is a term that refers to a sudden crash of markets and economies that are hooked on debt. And I'm going to read here uh, from how Bloomberg describes it, what makes a Minsky moment. The term refers to the end stage of a prolonged period of economic prosperity that has encouraged investors to take on excessive risk to the point where lending exceeds what borrowers can pay off, right? And that triggers uh, an increase in speculative and Ponzi finance. Then when a destabilizing event as simple as an increase in interest rates occurs, investors can be forced to sell assets to raise money to repay loans, which in turn sends markets into a spiral amid a demand for cash, right? And so this has happened a couple of times in history, you know, uh, in recent history, 1998, after the bursting of asset bubbles in Asia, the global financial crisis in 2007, 2008. And sometimes, as, as we've learned recently, the economic models and the economic theories don't always hold up in our current environment. We've certainly seen a lot of that in recent years. But at the same time, I think it's worth taking some of these terms that are thrown around casually in the world of economics and just making sure we have a sense of what they mean so that, you know, maybe we don't throw them around so casually and we really consider what we're saying when we're talking about this stuff. Yeah, totally fair. Totally fair. Um, Sorry, I'm just looking at Willow. She wants to open the door and it's pouring rain and cold uh, here by my shed. And I just, I want to close that door. But she's a golden retriever. Um, They love that stuff. Oh, she wants to be outside in the rain so bad. And I'm like, sweetie, it's like 42 (laughs) degrees and raining and we are not going for a walk right now. Anyway. She's built for that. um, Let her run in the yard Oh, I know. And she will wander around the backyard all day and then come inside and be wet. And you're like, I love you, but ew. (laughs) Um, all right, we, we have, all right, here's the update. We have compromised. The door is cracked open. Her nose is stuck outside and the rest of her body is inside. So I'm just going to deal with okay, that. Okay. That works. Um, yeah. here is my news item and it, and it goes a little bit to the banking crisis that we've been talking about. It goes a little bit to real estate, which we talk about every now and then there's a piece in the wall street journal today that points out that, uh, a record amount of commercial mortgages is expiring in 2023. And why is commercial mortgages important? Well, here's the deal. Commercial real estate is really challenged right now because specifically office space, because so many people are not in offices. And thus those buildings and that um, real estate has lost value. So we have assets losing value. We have interest rates going up. We have leases expiring. We have mortgages on those leases held by a lot of them, regional banks, and that becomes really challenging. And I don't want to pile on and say, oh, my God, it's the banking apocalypse. But I think we do need to be aware that maybe we're not entirely through the banking situation that we're having now because of 
other events that are going to happen besides Silicon Valley Bank. It's uh, we'll put it on the show page. It's a good piece. It's a good, good piece. It's really right, tricky. because if they don't finish paying them off, they're going to have to right. refinance into astronomically higher rates right. than what they had at right. the beginning. Right. Wow. Right. That's and look, be... people, office, you know, companies just don't need as much office space as they used to. And I mean, look no farther than Marketplace, right? And I've talked about this many yeah. a time. We've got 20-something thousand square feet, and there's like four and a half of us in there on an average day. So, uh, you know, it's I'd, I'd love to know what the negotiations and talks are like up in St. Paul, shall we say. Anywho, <laughs> anywho, anywho. All right. <laughs> that is it for our news fixes. Let's go ahead and move on to the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. Okay, last week we did a deep dive on TikTok, and we asked you all to let us know what you think of the app, and we got this from Nick. Hi, I'm Nick from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I'm on TikTok because it is the only democratic and fair social media platform. Other platforms, you already have to have a significant audience to be able to reach people, and on TikTok, you don't. I recently had a video that reached over 20 million people and raised awareness for the East Palestine train disaster, and I think without TikTok, Mm -hmm. no one would have heard about it. And it would have been like every other environmental disaster that doesn't affect anyone outside the town, doesn't get heard by anyone outside the town. That's really interesting. I, mm. you know, I've recently gotten on TikTok, much to the terror of my, you know, privacy settings. And yeah. I've been so fascinated to come across so many different videos from just regular people, you know. And on Twitter, you know, you have to actively make the decision to follow someone or that person has to be pushed out by a large group of people. But with TikTok, you will get served a video based on the algorithm of what TikTok thinks you want to watch and what, you know, people you follow might be watching. I'm not really following all that many people. But I mean, it's it's definitely exposes me to people, individual communities, and, and groups that I wouldn't have seen. It it actually reminds me a little bit of early Twitter, because Twitter was mm. kind of like that at the beginning. And mm-hmm. then it kind of became more of a curated platform. I don't I'm still a bit skeptical about how honest the algorithm is. And, you know, we've talked about this, you know, in terms of whether the parent company sort of weights the scale. You know, I was telling about all the ads for TikTok here in D.C. The other day they had on the Washington Post, you know how they wrap the paper in one of those mm-hmm. ads that's mm-hmm. like an extra mm-hmm. layer? It was a giant TikTok ad. Was it took it up. really? That's so Yes, it was funny. wrapped around the newspaper. It was wow. like full page, front and back on the back, and then a little sliver, uh, like half a page over the front. And I mean, and it was like, really, we're doing the best we can. It's okay. It's like full court press for TikTok here in Washington. I'm sure they're paying their lobbyists and their ad agencies and all them a gazillion dollars, but it may well be worth it if they get some traction, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, All right, let's see. One more. Uh, I was talking last week uh, about this piece in the Washington Post about corrosion, coastal erosion. Sorry, not corrosion, coastal erosion Mm. um, in Rodent. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, North Carolina. 
Uh, and we got this. Good morning, Kai and Kimberly. This is Margaret from Reston, Virginia, but originally from North Carolina. And I wanted to call during my morning walk to say that the story from the Washington Post about Rodanthe is a, is a gentrification story, too, in a way that y'all and the Washington Post didn't really talk about. Did you notice in that article that of all the people they quoted, only the sheriff seemed to live there full time? It was all so-and-so from New York State, so-and-so from Golden, Colorado, whose vacation homes are falling into the sea. So there's a little bit of that aspect to it, too. And that's happening all along the Outer Banks and has been for years. And it's important to remember that, too, when we're having, having these conversations about these places. Thanks for making us smart. Y'all have a good one. Yeah, it's a really that's good so point. important. Really good point. It's a very good yeah. point. And... This comes up a lot when it when you're talking about FEMA and flood insurance, you know, mm-hmm. that a lot of the people who build on the coast and have these vacation homes tend to be very, very wealthy. And then they're taking emergency funds um, to rebuild homes and often have yeah. better lawyers and better access to get those funds than lower income people who actually live there and end up being permanently displaced. Um, yeah. And yeah, that's a very good point. Thank you for sending that. Uh- Super quick on the pronunciation. First of all, it's Rodanthe, uh, so I appreciate that correction. Also, Nancy Jensen on Twitter yesterday. Apologies. It's King County, Washington, talking about the Oxford comma. Not Kings. My bad. Apologies. Uh, Yeah. 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 King County. Happens to the best of us. (laughs) All right. Before we go, we are going to leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is, what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? And being that it's Women's History Month, uh, this week's answer comes from Kay Wise Whitehead, president of the National Women's Studies Association. I grew up believing that I did not want to have children. The children had nothing to teach me, that everything I needed to learn, I could learn on my own, through my own experience. I have since found out after co-raising two brilliant and beautiful African-American sons that motherhood is not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. It is for the strong and for the strong will. It has taken everything from me and given me so much more in return. I have found myself through the eyes and the experiences of my sons, I have realized quite happily that motherhood is indeed my greatest joy. It is the moment when I've come face to face with who I want to be and who I Mm. am becoming. I am happy that the greatest thing I've ever done is I've been a mother, but I found myself on the other side. Oh, that was lovely. That was great. That is. I've often said that. that it is one of the most astonishing feats of bravery that I can ever imagine to be the mother of black sons in the United States of America. Yeah. 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 It's got to be terrifying every single day. Every Every day. day. And people do it and do it like she does. Keep doing Mm -hmm. it. Uh, So send us your answer uh, to that question, which is, of course, what is something you thought you knew, but later found out you were wrong about? Uh, Voice message, uh, email, whatever. 508-827-6278, 508-827-6278, and we'll get you on the pod. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Our intern is Antonio Barreras, and today's program was engineered by Drew Jostad with mixing by Gary O'Keefe. 
Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez did the music. Marissa Cabrera is the acting senior producer of this podcast. Bridget Bodner is her boss. She's the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of Digital and On Demand. She's Bridget's boss. And Francesca's boss is Marketplace's vice president and general manager, Neil Scarborough. I just want to shake up the credits. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, I mean, technically it's everybody's boss, but, you know. Well, that's true. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.